following is a teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how you can join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org. Well, good morning, IBC. My name is Sissy. I'm one of the pastors here. So good to be with you this morning. So good to worship together this morning. As Isaac mentioned, we're kicking off a new seven-week series today that we're calling This Beautiful Mess because the church is beautiful, but she's messy. And very likely, we've all experienced both the beauty and the messiness, the disappointment that can sometimes come with the church. And we see it in the world around us. We see Churches that are preaching the word, that are serving and caring for their communities and transforming their city with the power of the gospel. But we also see, perhaps we've even experienced the the pain and hurt that can sometimes come with the church. Abuse and division, a lack of compassion and care for the most vulnerable can often leave us feeling angry and disillusioned with the church. The church is beautiful, but she's messy. In Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus addresses seven churches that are scattered throughout Western Asia that are very much like us. They're they're trying to live the way of Jesus, surrounded by a culture that is doing everything it can to distract them, divide them, and to tear them apart. And so in this series, we're gonna be looking at these letters of Jesus to these seven churches. And we'll find comfort and challenge, correction and hope so that we might become the kind of people that God has called us to be, so that we might become the kind of church that pushes back the darkness and shines the light of Jesus to the world around us. The church, our church, this beautiful mess is the means by which God's mission to rescue and transform the world is accomplished. And so this morning, we are gonna kick it off by looking at this very first letter to the church in Ephesus. It's found in Revelation 2, 1 to 7. If you have your Bibles, grab them. Revelation 2, 1 to 7 is where we will be. But before we get to this letter, I wanna tell you about another church, a church that's located right here in Dallas, right in the heart of our city called Ephesus Bible Church. And they're a church that is making an impact on our city. They are serving and seeking to meet the most urgent needs of our city. They partner with local organizations to meet the needs of the poor and the homeless. Every week, EBCers are are serving and cooking meals for those in need. They have a thriving ministry to newcomers where they're teaching ESL and providing job training and really caring for refugees and, and immigrants. They have a medical clinic where those in need can come to get proper medical care and attention. They partner with Dallas ISD to to serve students and teachers and and families. Every week, EBCers are going into the schools of our city and they're volunteering to be mentors to students and, and they provide books and other necessary resources for the schools. They are a hard working church. But they're not only a church that serves our city, they, they also are a church that is committed to biblical truth. They know their Bibles. I mean, they never met a Bible study they didn't like. You name it, they've done it. Beth Moore, Tony Evans, they've done it all. 
And in fact, their senior pastor, Dr. Larry Cohns, is a, a seminary professor, a renowned Bible scholar, and a, an exceptional preacher. And so they are committed to the truth of scripture. They are uncompromising in their commitment to the truth of God's word. They stand up for the truth no matter what the cost. And one look at their website, and you could see that this is an active church. Their schedules are filled with activities. They got men's Bible study and women's Bible study and young adults and marriage workshops and kids ministry and youth gatherings and lock-ins. You name it, this church is doing it. They are killing it. They are an incredible church. And one day, Jesus slides into their DMs and he sends them a message. Ephesus Bible Church, I know your deeds. I know everything you're doing. And I have something against you. Now, wait a minute, Jesus. You know everything this church is doing and you have something against them? What in the world could Jesus have against this amazing church? By now, some of you have Googled Ephesus Bible Church and Pastor Larry, and you have discovered that it doesn't exist, that I made it up. And by the way, who needs Pastor Larry when we have Pastor Barry? <laughs> but this must have been what it felt like for the church in Ephesus when they received this message from Jesus. Wait a minute, Jesus. You know everything we're doing. You know our deeds and you have something against us? What in the world, they must have wondered. They must have been shocked. What in the world could Jesus have against them? Now, if you find the answer to that, first I need to give you a little bit of background about the church in Ephesus and uh, the city of Ephesus as well. Now, Ephesus was a major city at this time. Many have likened it to the New York City of its day. And it served as the best port of entry into Asia Minor. And so it was a, a center of commerce and religion and government. It was a highly influential city. But it was also a dark city. The Temple of Artemis was located in Ephesus and it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And so this was a city that thrived on the worship of Artemis who was a goddess associated with fertility. And later on, one of the most wicked of the Roman emperors, Domitian, uh, built a temple to himself in Ephesus. And because it was a major port on the Aegean coast, people came from all over the world and they brought with them their mysticism and their sorcery and their witchcraft. Now, while it was a dark city, it was also a strategic city because it was a city that was in desperate need of the gospel. And so in Acts 19, we read that Paul spent about two and a half to three years there. And this is the longest that he stayed in any of the cities that he ministered to. And God does extraordinary miracles through Paul. He, they, Paul uh, preaches the gospel and he heals people from sicknesses. He delivers them from demon possession. And, and people come to put their trust in Jesus. They repent and they come to put their trust in Jesus. And those who had once worshiped Artemis and practiced witchcraft bring their idols and they bring their sorcery books to the center of the town. And they put them in the town square and they light it on fire. They burn it. And this sets off a riot because uh, people that were once profiting from idolatry and witchcraft are now going out of business because so many people have repented of their sin. They've turned to Jesus. Just imagine today if human traffickers are forced to leave our city because so many of their former customers have become followers of Jesus. 
And so they're no longer interested in perpetrating evil and injustice against the most vulnerable. That's what happened in Ephesus. The light of Jesus is pushing back the darkness in this city. And this is how the church of Ephesus is born. They come to put their faith in Jesus. They fall in love with him. He becomes their ultimate love. And they're so committed to him and the truth of God's word that they rid themselves of their idols and their sorcery and anything else that once held their affections and they follow fiercely, passionately after Jesus. And Paul plants this church and it grows rapidly. It becomes a, a hub for Christian missionary activity. And he preaches the gospel both to Jews and to Gentiles. And he doesn't start two separate churches. No, no, no. He starts one church and he calls them to reconciliation. He says, you've been reconciled to God. Now you are reconciled to one another through the work of Jesus Christ. You are one new humanity. Something that the world has never seen has taken place here in the church in Ephesus. They are a beautiful multi-ethnic church. And then 30 years after Paul plants this church, they get this message from Jesus. Church in Ephesus, I know everything that you're doing. I know your deeds and I have something against you. What could Jesus have against this amazing church? This morning, we're gonna take a look at this message from Jesus to the church in Ephesus because while it's written to them, it's written for us as well. So uh, there are some similarities, maybe even a pattern, I would say, throughout these seven letters. For the most part, they each have a description of Jesus, a commendation of the church, a correction of the church, and then a promise for the church. So let's take a look at the description of Jesus. Revelation 2, 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, to understand what the seven stars are and the seven golden lampstands, we need to look a few verses earlier to Revelation 1.20. Here's what Jesus says. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So the seven stars are the angels of these seven churches that Jesus writes to. Well, angels are messengers. And so very likely this is referring to the, the leaders or the pastor of each one of these churches. And the seven lampstands are the churches themselves. They are meant to be a light to the world. And Jesus holds them in his right hand. This is the hand of authority. And, and he walks among them. Jesus is sovereign and in control and he, he cares for them, sustaining them with his very presence. They live in a dark city, and the very first thing Jesus says to them is, I am in control, and I am with you, and I care for you. Now here's the commendation to the Ephesians. Verse two, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Three things that Jesus commends them for. First, he says that they are a diligent church. They're a hardworking church. They're not lazy. They know that the mission God has for them and they go after it. They're serving in the church. They're caring for their community. They are doing all the things. They're a diligent church. But then he also says that they're a dedicated church. 
They're steadfast, they've persevered. They've endured hardships for the name of Jesus and have not grown weary. They've been through difficult days. They've had trials and and hard times, and yet they've kept going. They're faithful. They're a dedicated church. And then thirdly, they're a discerning church. Now, to see more of this, we've got to look at verse six as well. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The Nicolaitans were, uh, were a group that said that you could follow Jesus, but you could also just sort of live however you wanted. That you could make small compromises with the culture so that you could avoid persecution and live a comfortable life. And you could still follow Jesus. And the Ephesians said, no, they are committed to biblical truth. They cannot tolerate wicked people. They test those who claim to be apostles. They hold unswervingly to sound teaching and right doctrine. And they won't allow heresy to come into the church. In Acts 20, Paul had warned them about savage wolves coming into the church and and they've listened to Paul. They've stood firm against false teaching. And so Jesus commends them. They are diligent and dedicated. They are discerning. They seek the good of the city. They are faithful. They are uncompromising in their commitment to God's word. This is an awesome church. But then Jesus corrects them. Verse four, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. In other translations, it reads that you have abandoned your first love. And by first love, Jesus isn't talking about their earliest love. He's talking about the priority of their loves. Love is what we dedicate our time, our attention, our our resources, our emotional capacity and energy to. And it could either be life-giving or it can be life-draining. And our loves are what define us. They're what we order our lives around. And Jesus is saying, you've been so busy doing things for me that you just stopped being with me. Because things can look good on the outside, can't they? We can be reading our Bibles and going to church and praying and serving, but deep inside our hearts can be far from God. And this is what happens when idolatry subtly and slowly creeps into our lives. We create an idol when we take a thing, even a good thing, and we make it an ultimate thing. Tim Keller, paraphrasing Augustine, one of the early church fathers, writes this. We either love what we ought not to love, or we fail to love what we ought to love, or we love more what we should love less, or love less, but we should love more. Sin is the disordering of our loves. We love what we should not love and and, and the things we ought to love, we do not love enough. And only Jesus can reorder our love so that we center our lives on him and he becomes our first love. Jesus must be the first and ultimate love of our lives. He will not take second place to any other love. And, And what happened to the Ephesians and what can often happen to us is we can begin by understanding who Jesus is and how he came for us, how he rescued us from sin and death, and we fall in love with him as we recognize all that he's done for us. And our hearts are drawn to him, our affections are stirred for him, but then slowly, even subtly, over time, instead of being with Jesus, we just become about doing for Jesus. And we just start checking things off our list. 
read my Bible, prayed, went to church, went to Bible study, gave financially, check, check, check. But it's void of any real genuine love and affection for Jesus. And other things, or perhaps other people, become our first and ultimate love rather than Jesus. Friends, what is the first and ultimate love of your life? What is it that gives your life meaning, that, that gives you worth? What is, it that, what is the thing or the person in your life that you said, if I don't have this thing, if I don't have this person, life is not worth living? Is it comfort? Life only has meaning if I have this kind of life or I live in this kind of house. Is it success? Life only has meaning if I land this, this job, get this promotion or get the corner office. Is it a relationship? Life only has meaning if I get married or if my marriage looks this way. Is it approval? Life only has meaning if I'm loved and respected and admired by my kids, by my spouse, by my coworkers or my friends. Because if you love anything or anyone more than Jesus, you will crush that person, crush that thing under the weight of your expectations, and in the end, it will break your heart. Our heart's loves are disordered. They're out of order. The things that we ought to love third and fourth, we love first in our hearts. And we misidentify what will make us happy. And much of the turmoil and the chaos that we experience in life is because while things may look good on the outside, deep inside, Jesus is not our first love. And I have been there. John Calvin famously wrote, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. And that's so true of me, it's so true of my heart. Eight years ago, I left a successful career in corporate finance to go to seminary. And that came after three years of really wrestling with God about that decision, because I didn't want to go. And I was confident that that was God's call on my life, but I didn't want to go. And I had all these reasons, many of which were logical and rational for why that was not a good decision for me. I uh, am the daughter of Indian immigrants, and my parents came to this country in the early 70s to give my brother and sister and I a, a better life. And they sacrificed tremendously to give us that life. And this, I come from a communal culture, and at the center of my culture is family. And there's an incredibly high value placed on honoring your elders and, and caring for your parents. And so I've always felt a responsibility to care for my parents, to even provide financially for them after all the sacrifice that they made for me. And I knew that going to seminary and going into ministry would not allow me to do that in the way a lucrative finance career would. So I didn't want to go. And as I explored what was at the root of my disobedience, because that's what that was, God had a call on my life and I didn't want to do it. As I explored what was at the root of my disobedience, it wasn't care and concern for my parents. Not if I'm honest. It was because I wanted a comfortable life. I didn't want to ever worry about money. I wanted uh, to make sure that I had the quality of life, the kind of life that I desire. I wanted to be comfortable. 
And I made an idol out of comfort. But there have been times in my life I've done this with other things. I've made an idol out of uh, my work, even my ministry. Because the moment that my worth comes from being a good pastor or preaching a great sermon, and more than being the beloved daughter of God, in that moment, I have created an idol. And maybe that's where you find yourself this morning. Maybe in the outside, everything looks good, but deep down inside, you know Jesus is not the first and ultimate life, love of your life, that you are looking to someone or something else to be your ultimate happiness. So what do we do? Let's look at what Jesus says to the Ephesians. Verse five. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Jesus gives them four commands. First, he says, remember. Consider or remember from from where you have fallen. The act of remembering plays an important role in our relationship with Jesus because we are forgetful people. And throughout the Old Testament, we see the people of God set up altars so that they might remember God's faithfulness. God even commands them to have set aside days to celebrate so that they might remember God's goodness in their lives. And in the same way, we are to remember what it was like when we first fell in love with Jesus. Remember when you first put your trust in him and you were just passionate about your relationship with him? Remember when you would read the Bible and and it was just alive and fresh to you? Remember when you would pray and you just felt deeply connected to Jesus? Remember when you would serve, not out of duty or obligation, but out of delight and love for God? Remember when you couldn't wait to get to church because you wanted to worship together with God's people? Remember, Jesus says. But then he says, repent. Repentance is turning from our sin and turning to to Jesus. And Jesus is not the icing on the cake. He's not even the cake. He's the very best meal that we could ever have. Everything else comes in second place to Jesus. He is everything. Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Jesus says, if, if you want to follow me, you must love everything and everyone else, including your own family, less than me. Because I will have no rivals for your affection. I will have no competitors for your heart. Think of the people that you love the most in the world. Maybe it's your spouse or your kids or your parents. Jesus says, The love you have for them is so far removed. It's like a million miles away compared to the love you have for me. Whatever it is that you've been looking to, to give your life meaning, to to make you feel valuable, turn from those things and turn to me. Because Jesus will never settle for anything less than being the first and ultimate love of your life. And so we must turn from our idols and turn to Jesus. But repentance doesn't mean just cut it out, stop doing the wrong thing, because that doesn't really work. That kind of thinking really just focuses on our behaviors. The only way to rid ourselves of our idols is to get to the root of our sin and to replace it with a greater love. 
The real problem of our hearts, the real problem of our idols is that we're looking to something or someone else other than Jesus to be our ultimate happiness. And Jesus is the only one that can satisfy the deepest longing, the greatest ache of our hearts. Thomas Chalmers was a Scottish preacher who lived in the early 1800s who said this, the only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. It is when admitted into the number of God's children through the faith that is in Jesus Christ that the spirit of adoption is poured upon us. It is then that the heart under the mastery of one great and predominant affection is delivered from the tyranny of its former desires and is the only way in which deliverance is possible. We must turn from our idols and replace them with the greater, more powerful love. We must replace them with Jesus. We remember, we repent, and then thirdly, we return. Jesus says, do the things you did at first. Return to doing the things you did when you first fell in love with me. True joy is found when we retrain our hearts to do the things that we know we should do. You do the things you did at first, not because you did it out of duty or some kind of obligation or to check something off your list, but because you did it out of love for me. Return and do those things. And for me, that meant giving up the idol of comfort, being obedient to God's call on my life because Jesus is my first love. It means that my ministry and my preaching doesn't define me. I mean, I hope you think this is a good sermon, but if you don't, it's okay. Because Jesus is my first love. My relationship with him is what defines me. In Jesus' correction for the church, there's also a warning. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. If, not, if they're not willing to repent of the idols of their hearts, Jesus says he will remove their lampstand. They will lose their influence for the gospel. So maybe the doors of the church are still open, but there's no life, no real vitality there. And the moment you and I say that we're gonna cling to these idols rather than turning to Jesus, it's in that moment that we stop being the light of the world. The light that Jesus has called and created us to be. Remember, repent, return. There's one last command. This one's not as direct as the first three, but it's so vitally important. And here Jesus moves from correction to promise. And that fourth command is to rejoice. Verse seven, whoever has ears, let them hear what the spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The one who's victorious will experience paradise. And paradise in the Bible always means the presence of God. The story of God opens in Genesis with the picture of paradise in the garden. And it ends in Revelation with the picture of paradise at the wedding supper of the lamb. We are invited to eat with God. And in this culture, to share a meal, to be invited to a meal with someone is an invitation to intimacy and to friendship and relationship. And we rejoice because the God of the universe wants to be in relationship with us. Do you see that? We, we are invited to eat from the tree of life. The, word, the Greek word for the word life there is the word zoe. 
and it can be translated uh, the uncreated eternal life of God, the, the divine life that's uniquely possessed by God. And when we put our trust in Jesus, we are united to Christ into this divine life. And when we make him our first love, we experience fullness of joy. This is where true joy is found. We experience abundant, rich, soul-satisfying life, not in eternity, but here and now, right now, because of our relationship with Jesus. Friends, on the outside, our lives can look good, like we're doing all the right things, but deep inside, our hearts can be far from God. And maybe that's where you find yourself this morning. Maybe you're here this morning because you're just checking a box or it's just what you've done your whole life. But deep down inside, you know that Jesus is not the first and ultimate love of your life. You're looking to someone or something else for your ultimate happiness, to give your life meaning and worth. And those things and those people will ultimately fail you, disappoint you, and they will break your heart because they were never meant to be your worth. They were never meant to give your life meaning. Only Jesus can satisfy the deepest longing and the greatest ache of your heart. And so the invitation is to remember. Remember what it was like when you first fell in love with Jesus. And then to repent, to turn from your sin, to turn from your idols, to turn to Jesus. And then to return to do the things you did at first, to, to retrain your hearts to do what you know you should do, not out of duty, but out of delight, out of love for Jesus. And then finally, to rejoice. Because the God of the universe wants to have a relationship with you. And that is where joy is found. Remember, repent, return, and rejoice. And maybe you're here and you've been walking with Jesus for years. You know all the right things, you're doing all the right things, but deep inside your heart is far from God. And the invitation to you, the invitation from Jesus is to repent and to, to return to him, to make him your first love. Well, maybe you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus and, and perhaps you're thinking, look, you don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what's been done to me and you think God can't love you. And, and so you've been looking to other people and other things to be your ultimate happiness, and it hasn't worked. They have failed you, and they have disappointed you, and you find yourself hopeless and in despair. And if that's you this morning, I need you to hear me. There is hope in Jesus. Make him your first love. Jesus is not after your performance. Jesus is not telling you to try to earn his love. Jesus comes for you. He wants to be with you. He wants to have a relationship with you. This is the invitation. Make him your first love. Jesus gave his life for us, and so now we give our lives to him in return. Jesus laid his life down for us. He made us his first love. So now we respond and we make him our first love. This isn't about Jesus just asking you to love him more. This is about Jesus showing you, telling you that he loves you most. Oh, that we would be people that are marked by a deep and passionate, a ferocious love for Jesus. Oh, that we would make him our first love. Friends, this is the invitation of Jesus. This is where joy and life is found.
Make him your first love. Before we come to the table this morning, I wanna give us just a, a few moments to reflect on our lives, to talk to God in the quietness of our hearts. If I could offer you a question to reflect upon, it's just this. What is the first and ultimate love of your life? And if the answer to that question is anyone or anything other than Jesus, you, this moment is for you to just talk to God about that, to repent, to turn from your sin, to turn to Jesus, to make him your first love. I'll give you a few moments to do that. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Father, thank you for the grace and the forgiveness, the new life that we experience because of Jesus Christ. Help us now to rid ourselves of our idols, to turn from our sin, to turn to Jesus, to make him our first love. We ask this in the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you for listening to this teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how to join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org.